You are Locked On Browns, your daily podcast covering the Cleveland Browns, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Good evening, everybody. Jeff Lloyd, your host, is always here on Locked On Browns. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, Tuesday, the Cleveland Browns is a big, big day in the media. Um, obviously, you know, the one story got a lot of run, but you guys know me. You know the Odell lover that I am, a piece that is going to involve him and, you know, uh, the you know, maturation and growth and how all this product came together, was put together by Sports Illustrated's own Ben Baskin. Fantastic job with it. Um, I love a long read. I'm still traditionalist. Um, you know, I was the one that always got Sports Illustrated as a kid. So we're here to talk with Ben about the piece and your daily delivery of all things Dog Pound. Uh, ben, about how long, begin, you know, when did the process of this piece start? Oh, well, first, thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it. Always glad to talk some Browns. And I would say it's twofold on, on, on a story like this. The, the, the first part is, you know, beginning of conversations around if this story is going to be feasible in the way that I like to do it in terms of the access needed. And, you know, the Browns, I will say, were amenable right off the bat. They were happy to assist here and, you know, provide me with a sit down with John Dorsey and Freddie Kitchens and, um, you know, helpful in terms of getting into negotiations with the players in the way that they could. But I've had a relationship with, with Jarvis. I wrote a story on Jarvis Landry last year for the magazine when he first came to Cleveland. Um, so, you know, that was a, a long conversation months, you know, early, shortly after, um, right after Odell came, I want to say, it was the conversation kind of started. And um, then it sort of, you know, progresses from there and sort of boring ways of how these, you know, behind the scenes things work in terms of timing and, you know, how much time I needed to be able to do this story. Um, and then, you know, the actual reporting process takes, you know, a month or so um, in terms of phone calls. I, I, I use maybe you know, 25% of the reporting actually tangibly makes it into the story. There were uh, over two dozen interviews done for this story. I probably quoted five people. Um, so uh, all of that in, in, in totality, you know, at least three, four, five months in, in, from start to finish. But, you know, reporting wise, probably about around a month, a little over a month, I'd say. Okay. And it is kind of funny how much, and even for a long piece, how much work you actually put into it and then, yeah. then how much actually ends up, you know, going into it. Um, for us, in, like, I'll still go back to it in, um, it was, we were actually recording that night and, you know, you had highlighted the Sheldon Richardson, uh, and we, we were in the middle of talking and then there it is, you know, it came in, we're in the middle of recording and we're trying to, you know, cause we were in the middle of oh, well, Sheldon Richardson, this is a good signing. You added it. And then we're just, it, it, the news came through, it got confirmed as we're looking through on social media. And then I'm like, who are we kidding? We just got to take this 15 minutes and just absolutely dump this. You can't, you, you can't go into a minute 16, 17 of, oh, hey. And they acquired uh, Odell Beckham Jr. There had been some, you know, hints. I mean, the way you reported it, there had been some hints that they were entertaining the offer and nobody really thought that, you know, Odell was attainable. Um, but I, I think you did a, a great description of it. I think with Odell and the Giants, it was just something, it was just never going to work. It was never a good match. Um, and, you know, obviously, as Odell said in the piece, you know, they're a little bit older, which is one thing I say because I live here in New Jersey. Uh, they're very old and antiquated in their ways. It just was never going to work between Odell and that organization. It certainly, you know, in his point of view, did not seem like this was a a recent change. He He, he said he never bought a house in the – 
in the area because for the last few years he was expecting to be traded. It was not sort of one of those things that uh, happened in the last second. And he was sort, certainly sort of disgruntled uh, in a way, but also, um, you know, sort of felt like the Giants were disgruntled with him in a way. He, he, he never felt comfortable. He never felt like he could be himself. He never felt like they were accepting him to be himself there. Um, as, like they wanted him to be something that he wasn't. Um, and he always felt like he, um, you know, was bringing more to that organization than, you know, they were appreciating him for. And, you know, that could be debated. Um, obviously, the Giants are a storied, historic, and respected franchise. And um, a lot of ways, they were successful well before Odell. And I'm sure they will have success and not be too, you know, hung up on this without Odell. But they certainly um, were not an ideal match, I think is the best way to put it. And uh, although Odell did not expect to end up in Cleveland, I think that was abundantly clear despite the, you know, the talk a year before when Jarvis was tweeting, um, you know, kind of uh, publicly tweeting to get a, to get him to Cleveland. And um, Odell never thought that that was really a serious possibility. And they never really spoke about it that much too. They had a couple conversations somewhat, you know, more serious as the, it got closer to the trade Odell and Jarvis that is, but there was never a, um, the conversation between the two of them, like, Hey, let's go make this happen. You know, let's, let's see what we can do to get you to Cleveland and team up. But, um, it sort of all came together at the last second there in, in regards to Odell getting sent to Cleveland. Uh, and like part of this, and I'll explain, you know, um, and obviously for my Browns listeners and I live here, it's it's normally you are a Giant and a Yankee fan. You're normally a Jet and a Met fan. Um, a Jet player, a Met player can be young, have success, and he'll be loved for that. It doesn't always work that way for Giants and Yankees. And I think Odell's one-handed catch against Dallas, which made him not only one of the better players in the New York Giants, made him one of the better stars in the league. That's normally for the Giants fans, it doesn't work that way. You've got to prove your worth, and most of the time they'll always bring up the Super Bowls. And I saw it. I mean, I'm you know I grew up a Jet fan here. Part of it is there's so many Giants fans. I felt bad somebody had to root for the Jets. (laughs) <laughs> part of it was, and, and I can, I, I'd hear it on Sundays. I'd see it on social media. I'd, I'd get texts from friends. Oh, I have nine for 132 and a touchdown. Big deal. They lost by 10. Like, I think once he got anointed a star of the league, they let, they expected him to do everything and then go sell the beer when the defense was on the field. Well, and the thing to, to kind of further that Giants-Yankees metaphor is that Odell became the most beloved player on the Giants before he – you know, earned his proverbial stripes in the uh, the Yankees way is that, you know, he had that catch and became this beloved figure and, you know, arguably for at least a subset of, of the fan more popular than Eli. Um, obviously, uh, that's a, it's different uh, between, I think, the older Giants fans would probably still gravitate towards Eli, but still there was a large contingent of Giants fans that had anointed Odell as you know, the chosen one, the face of the franchise. And he, not um, in a way that he felt comfortable with, really. I think he he made it abundantly clear to me that he had no regrets about the catch and the fame that came with it, um, because that was something we talked about. Um, I'd say, you know, a good portion of my conversation with Odell 
was not able to fit in the story. Hopefully it will make it fit somewhere else because it was a Brown story and not an Odell story. But um, some, there, there was, his fame that he attained was not the typical NFL fame, not, especially not the typical NFL rookie fame. But even just for NFL players, he was, as he put it, you know, more of a celebrity than a football player. People kind of looked at him and talked about him and as if he was, you know, uh, a, a Hollywood star and not, you know, a wide receiver. And that is very rare in football where they go out of their way to make um, players as, you know, similar and non they don't want guys to be like that. They don't want guys to stand out. And Odell did in a lot of ways. And it, it sort of changed everything for him. And I think he's still sort of grappling with how to handle that. I don't, I don't, and I don't really blame him for that. I don't think that's an easy thing for anyone to sort of be thrust into as a 22 year old kid coming into the NFL. Yeah. And I think also part of it was is the Giants fans didn't really know who he was. A lot of people don't remember this. He didn't do anything in the summer because he was injured. So it's not like he participated in any exhibition games. He was out the first four weeks, thrown out on the field against Atlanta because, I mean, they needed him. They knew they were drafted a good player. Uh, He scored a touchdown that game. And then it just literally took off. So it's not even like, you know, he and the other he had, you know, I think it was the second game. I think it was a Thursday night game against Philadelphia. He struggled that week. But then he just absolutely dominated the league for the tune of 1,200 yards as a rookie in 12 games. And, and like you said, you know, you think you're going to go to the league. You think you're going to be a star, but it's a whole different thing when you actually are. And it's not that you're just, you know, a star on the field. You're a star everywhere. Yeah. And for me and even my wife, because like I all, I'll always rank things about, you know, whether what if my wife knows who it is, you know, like that's when you know how big it is because she doesn't truly care. And the one day I dropped the kids off at school and you know, actually she was with me. And she's like, I think I just counted nine Odell Beckham Jr. Junior Jersey. I was like, yeah. yeah, this is, I mean, and this is where, and, you know, it was always the Eli's because they were sons of, you know, giant fans, but no, 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 no. It was Odell Beckham Jr. Jerseys. And yeah, I mean, it was a tough spot for him. Guys, we're going to get a bunch more here on Locked On Browns with Ben Baskin from, obviously, uh, from Sports Illustrated, wrote this fantastic article. Now, Ben, when you highlighted in the beginning, obviously, you went through, uh, you know, John Dorsey, you went through Freddie Kitchens. And one of the things we've been trying to preach and why we're so positive where this product finally is after all these years is even though all these guys are somewhat similar, they all kind of seem to be alike in the one thing of, you know, John probably doesn't like the way things ended in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Freddie Kitchens was Freddie Kitchens was a guy not looking for a shot. He was looking for a shot at getting a shot. Uh, you know, obviously Jarvis and Odell, you know, were in you know, one was in Miami, one in New York. You know, you think you're in greener pastures, but, you know, things never worked out really for either one of them. And now you get this conglomeration together and you have a quarterback who feels like he's got to prove it, <laughs> who's maybe already probably proven it and still feels like he's going to prove it till he's 97 years old if anybody tests him on anything. It's, it's, it's a very similar group of people in how they view what they do. Yes, I, I, I'm glad they came across because it certainly was a common thing thread through all of this is the underlying nature of you know it 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 goes hand in hand with sort of the it kind of was a juxtaposition in a lot of ways of of the the hype around the team right now and sort of the calls of you know appointing them and um i could have you know I, i i went out of my way in the article you know not to you know give any 
grand ex, uh, ex, uh, expectations and um, I didn't call for the playoffs or the Super Bowl. I know that our headline writers kind of went a different way and um, that, that, that sort of changed the narrative there. But um, these guys are all not buying into the hype. They all have their own sort of personal narrative that they are, you know, fighting against. As you said, you know, John was cast off GM that shocked him. Um, when he got fired from Kansas City, he didn't see that coming. No one saw it coming. It was a, a shocking move for a guy who had been one of the more successful GMs in the league with one of the most talented rosters in the league in case he built that team to where it is now, um, and they let him go. Um, and he had worries that he wasn't going to get another chance. Um, Freddie had worries that he would never get a chance at all. Um, and for a long time, it seemed like that was going to be the case. Um, obviously, Baker, you know, he he – if he doesn't have a, a slight, uh, you know, a real one that's being sent to him, he'll find a fake one and he'll turn it into a, <laughs> a slight. And um, that's a positive. And, in, 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 you know, if it, if it, uh, it, it clearly we see that all the time with Baker now um, and Odell and Jarvis. Yeah. They, these are guys that are superstar receivers, you know, two of the best receivers in the league. And they, both of their teams that drafted them decided that they weren't worth the money and headache anymore. They were, you know, traded for marginal value. Um, Odell obviously got a little bit more than, than Jarvis, but um, still both of those guys were the top of the, the, the echelon of, of receivers. And, you know, it, it's they have to deal with the fact that their teams decided that they didn't want them anymore. Um, and, yes, all of these guys are coming together on a team that looks very talented but and is getting a lot of hype. And that's not, you know, any fault of their own. But they all are saying the right things in that regard of about the hype. You know, they haven't done anything. Uh, Freddie said, you know, how many of these guys have won any playoff games, any Super Bowls? They're all they're all hungry. Um, so I think that is going to be the team's sort of saving grace in terms of you know the combustibility will be the fact that you have a lot of these guys that are still trying to prove themselves, um, and no one really feels like they've achieved anything yet yeah it's you know and it's and we talk i talk about this all the time it's you know everyone just you know some people confuse it and look these guys do want to win um it's great to get the money it's great to uh you know obviously you know your stats your production which leads to your money that's fantastic and you know cleveland they've had a lot of free agent money for years but you weren't attracting anyone because well if i can get paid and win or am i just going to get paid so, you know, obviously where you're going to gravitate to what the better situation is all around. Um, obviously, what they did last year at 7-8-1 and one does make this situation you know, a, a lot prettier where you can get a guy like Sheldon Richardson, who kind of certainly fits in here, had a little bit of trouble off the field. Um, some people don't talk about the fact that when he was a New York Jet, he played defensive tackle. Well, we need you to play defensive end. Okay, I'll play defensive end. Um, we need you to play stand-up outside linebacker in the 3-4 because we don't have anybody to do that for the next couple of weeks. Okay, I'll do that. Some guys get bad reps and they don't change, you know, they don't, some people don't view the whole picture. And even when Sheldon came in and look, man, I've changed, I've grown up, you know, I've got a child now. I can't be doing the things I was doing, but you know, and the big thing is, is some guys, guys can change people. Just so many people are, you know, just figure it's a narrative. That's it. You are who you are. You'll never change, but there's a lot. Of, I mean, you know, with anybody, you're a bigger, different person from yeah. 21 to 25, 26 years old. And I do think that's what's going to be a driving factor here is, and I think these guys, they're all around the same age. 
They all know you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good. And wow, this team went seven, eight, and one before we added three, four really good players here. Yeah. And I think um, that kind of goes to, and I, I, I kind of got uh, shrunk to maybe, I think, two sentences in my story. But Odell had this great, really interesting metaphor about labels and we talked about it a lot and I really had to kind of condense it to fit into a you know a small part of the story but he believes that him and Jarvis and these guys on the team have been given these labels as you're saying for a variety of reasons immature um you know volatile you know not great diva yeah diva and he believes that it's not it's it's simply because they're not understood correctly and people need to label things that they don't understand and he talked about how that happens with ufos you know he went into this whole thing about how people see um you know objects flying in the sky and they don't know what it is but they can't say that they don't know what it is so they need to label it as something so they call it a ufo and you know they pretend like they know what it is and they say all these things and he compared himself to this, this UFO. And I thought it was in a weird way, this really introspective moment that he really just doesn't feel like he's understood correctly. And he really wants to be understood. Um, and he really doesn't understand why people are labeling him this way. And I, I get, I, I honestly see both sides of it because obviously Odell has done some things in his past that, have been curious, you know, proposing to a kicking net on the sideline was a curious, odd move that you just don't see happen very often, but it's the harmless. Boat trip before, the it, boat trip before the Packers, that was the, the one boat. that did the fan base in. That was, yeah, that certainly didn't help, but those things like the kicking net and, you know, his kind of quirkiness that for whatever reason gets painted in a different way instead of just sort of fun and quirky, it's sort of looked at as, you know, uh corrosive and and bad for the for the team and he just doesn't believe that it's it's a fair way to look at it and he you know he may he hasn't done anything in his career that's you know egregiously bad at getting arrested or he pointed out you know some things of, of other guys have done that um he's never been in trouble for so he they, they he just doesn't they he didn't buy into this belief that um that there are these personalities on the team that could clash. He didn't really in, even entertain that they'd have to worry about it. Cause he just doesn't believe that, that that's true. And, and it, it, as he points out him and Jarvis, you know, superstar receivers in college on a team that did not throw the ball, you know, LSU, <laughs> that was a running first team. They didn't get many, you know, pass looks. They didn't get many uh, targets. And he said, you know, th- these guys were best friends. They didn't, fight each other there were no issues on that team they were legitimate best friends so he's like if we could make it work in college with uh um you know he didn't say it but you know the quarterbacks in college were not of the caliber at lsu was of baker mayfield and on a team that was you know not throwing the ball he doesn't expect to have any problems uh in cleveland and that goes along with some of the things here because you know some of the people oh he's not playing in the preseason uh, you know, well, he didn't really come in the spring, you know, because everybody, I think a lot of Cleveland fans, they're just nervous, you know, about how this could go, which I, I can understand. Yeah. Um, well, first off, you don't want to play in the preseason. And I always go back, guys, he didn't play his preseason as a rookie and walked on the field when he finally got to play, dominated, didn't do anything for two months. 
Um, and the other thing is they have that relationship where they all go out to L.A. and, you know, they throw together. Uh, Rashard Higgins, who on this team, a year and a half ago, they cut him in the summer. They brought him back as a practice squad player. Yeah. The reason they never learned anything about him is they didn't have a good enough quarterback here to actually see what he was. Yeah. So, And I think that's what gets everybody excited. And the thing I noticed that is so much different, in, especially with Odell and Jarvis not playing these first two preseason games, is they're watching everybody else. And they're enjoying it. And they're excited for everybody else. And I think they're just more comfortable in the area that they are now. I mean, it, and it's weird when you talk about New York, which is – you know, I, you know, New York, where it's such a diverse city as far as everything. But the New York Giants are not a team that's, you know, where that ever would fly. You know, there was never a Terrell Owens there. Certainly was always available a bunch of times. They never had that flamboyant wide receiver, which is kind of normal because there's been a million of them. But just one never played for that franchise. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because the reputation, I don't know, there's something about Jarvis and Odell that doesn't get appreciated enough, I think. It's Jarvis, I'll say especially just because I know him better, but Odell is in the same mold. These guys are the most competitive players that you could come across in the league. There is no more, you know, competitive, somewhat, you know, psychotic in the competitiveness than Jarvis Landry. That guy will, you know, do anything to win. And he told me last year – and as he does every year, he has a list of personal goals that he writes out for himself. And he didn't reach any one of them last year, not a single one. Um, you know, the per- I, he didn't tell me what they are. He's per- private about that. I'm sure catches and yards and yards per catch and touchdowns and stuff like that. But he didn't reach a single one. And yet he told me at the end of the season, as his targets sort of started to go down last year, because Baker has a way of spreading the ball around, he was the happiest he had been because of the fact that they started winning and things start, and the culture started changing. And he said he sort of had to change the way he looked at, you know, his priorities of um, goals. Not that he has it. He still has the goal list, but it's less important than the overall team aspect and that's something that's not something that he just learned he obviously always knew that but I thought that was very sort of um you know important for the team last year that he sort of realized regardless of how many catches he had that the important thing was the fact that they were getting he was sort of getting things back on track and I'm sure that will be the same case this year um and it'll be even better because if you know if he's not catching a touchdown then maybe it's his best friend catching a touchdown and there's nothing they're going to enjoy more than celebrating each other's touchdowns. So it, it, for a, a, a situation that's sort of, um, you know, fraught with peril on the outside, it seems like there's a lot that could combust, and it certainly could. I still believe that it is the best possible way to be in that kind of situation, to have two of these guys. You have a lot of really competitive guys, young, hungry, and Really good friends. Baker is also really good friends with Jarvis and Odell. So um, I, I think it'll d- depend a lot on, um, you know, how the early going of the season happens. It will be a, a very important this year. I, I think if they start off strong, then um, I I, then they'll roll. Um, it, it'll, the question will be what happens when, you know, inevitability of uh, some sort of, you know, something happens. There will always be something that happens in an NFL season that they'll have to respond to. And that will really be when we, you know, see what how this team's going to work out. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the key is going to be those first two games. Uh, it, yeah. You got Tennessee without the right tackle, which is looking very probably winnable on paper at home. The Jets. Look, the Jets are going to be an improved franchise. That defense is taking some hits. They were already probably a couple of guys short. They get out the gate 2-0, and and then they start getting to the meat there of those good teams. That'll be interesting. There's one other thing. Uh, the Landry thing, and we took a lot of heat on this because when he first came over, and we even said, and, you know, everybody, oh, well, you got this, and look at the numbers he can put up. And, you know, me and my co-host Pete Smith, Pete Smith were like, guys, if he puts up those same numbers in Miami, the Browns may not be good. You need more than just him. And we took a bunch of hits. And it's funny now where everybody's kind of like, well, wow, yeah, the team's better now. You've got a more complete wide receiver core. And, of course, a lot of it's Baker. If you're open, he's going to throw it to you. It doesn't matter if you were 13, 80, 81, 85. If you're the guy who's open, most likely you're getting the ball. Yep. And then the last one on Odell, it was his rookie year. He caught like a fourth and eight pass against San Francisco. Only got like seven yards. It was short. Ball game was over. Niners took the field. He spiked his helmet. Everybody, this guy, and for me, and, and even though, look, I'm older, but, but I get it. He was pissed. He didn't get the job done. But everybody took it like it was this prima donna move. No, he was mad. He didn't do his job. You know, they lost because he didn't get the extra yard to at least keep the drive going. And it's just weird how that. Well, we're gonna get to the city of Cleveland, guys, where there's some great stuff in here for that. Um, remember, you can always check out the show iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Now, uh, with the city of Cleveland. Um, Obviously, this was great that you were able to incorporate this in here. And I, everyone's kind of getting on them. And look, and I try to explain to people from other, I'm like, I don't think you guys realize what it's like to actually have hope. Um, and that's the difference with this fan base now. They actually, and especially coming off 0-16 you know, to 7-8-1 and 1, to where this roster looks right now and the fact that Freddie's kind of being smart about the summer and saying, none of this means nothing. I want my best 53 for September 8th against Tennessee. And you see a fan base that's, you know, realizing like we've been the brunt of all the jokes obviously you brought up the jersey god everybody hates that jersey <laughs> but they're, they're starting to realize that you know it, it at least i mean they had thirty-seven thousand people show up for the scrimmage i mean these folks are amped and they're just happy to be amped yeah i think the fan base in cleveland that was sort of something i wanted to incorporate it was something i knew i needed to i think being out there the history of the franchise and the history of the city, um, not just the football part of it, but just the, you know, the, the trajectory of Cleveland as a, a city from, you know, where it was as sort of this peak in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and sort of this, in, this ventricle of industry in, in, in America to some of the, you know, the down years that kind of corresponded with the heartbreak years for the Cleveland fans, the Sipe years and the Kosar years where, you know, the People are fleeing the city because of everything sort of closing down and the rivers catching fire. And, um, you know, the team, the, the, the people poured their sort of heart into the team and it, it, the, uh, they got a pride derived from the Browns that they couldn't find elsewhere oftentimes. And um, it's to me, that was so interesting and poetic because, you know, the, the, the inextricable ties between the city and this team and, how they find an identity in the team. And then for the last two decades after the team is stolen and after they fight to get it back. And then it's sort of this, you know, real kick that, you know, you get your team back, but you get it in the worst possible way. We take all your players, we take your infrastructure, you get rushed back onto the, onto the field and, you know, you're set up for failure in a lot of ways. And then you're the worst team in the league for two decades. And 
yet through all of that, the fans remained. They they still believed and they still were prideful. You know, they, there was the pride kind of took an odd turn and they sort of became prideful in their misery. Um, they sort of took a pride in the fact that they were, um, you know, just a, doomed for failure. But the pride remained on the team. And now that they're back, you know, ostensibly back, now that the, the roster is there, now that the hype is there, the optimism is there, but it's also cautious. It's also, you know, this is Cleveland and things go wrong here is sort of the, the feeling I got of, uh, you know, we, we, I loved uh, Mike's kind of comment of, you know, he felt like uh, uh, Carrie, uh, Stephen King's Carrie, where you're, you know, you're on stage and everyone's clapping and cheering and you're blissfully unaware that there's a bucket of pig's blood that's about to dump on your head. Um, and I think there's a, a subset of Cleveland fans that are, you know, of that mindset too. But the other side is people just seem to want to enjoy this. Like, you know, let's not think about that yet. Let's enjoy the fact that we have hope for the first time in 20 years. So, um, I don't know. The, the, I, I love the fan base. I love the city. I, I, I was fascinated. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to sort of incorporate some of those voices in the story. Well, and I also think, and part of what it is now is you have a lot of, you know, call them the Kosar kids, the kids who grew up with that good era. They're now parents with kids of their own. And, you know, you're trying to, you know, edit, you know, the bunch of these guys I talk with, you know, when they all write and they do pods, and it was, you know, you're trying to get your kids to watch the Brown. They stink. You know, can we put on this game? And, you know, they want, you know, they're trying to get their, you know, because kids are going to follow what's good. You, now they're they're blending in and, and, you know, they're basically, you know, the Kosar kids are now having Baker kids. And, and it's it's great to see yeah. for a fan base, especially these type of people where the city is, trust me, we'll embrace you. Just come here and play your heart out. We'll embrace you. And you see that with a guy like Yasiel Puig over with the Indians now, always kind of a misunderstood guy. But they're in love with him because he goes, you know, 100% out on everything he does. And it's just the kind of city it is. Show up, do your work, and you're appreciated. It, it, it was a great article, Ben. And I, I truly, uh, truly enjoyed reading it and truly appreciate you taking the time out to join us here. Absolutely, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on. All right, guys. That's Ben Baskin from Sports Illustrated. We're going to put a bow on this. This has been your daily delivery of all things Dog Pound, LGB on the LOB. Let's go, Browns.